0: You may be seated. Let's take God's word together and turn to the New Testament book of Revelation. If you would please, Revelation chapter 2. And I want to begin just a brief series. We've looked at uh, these seven churches of Revelation, letters to the seven churches of Revelation, at least twice in my 14 years of pastoring here at Oxford. But um, I want to look at it again, perhaps with a new light and emphasis. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. And uh, we'll spend a little bit of time, I've, I've spent some time the last few months looking at the book of Revelation, and, and I confess I still have much to learn and much I don't quite understand, but I do believe that God has given us His Spirit to enable us to understand His Word, and I want to understand more and more of, of this book, so we will endeavor to look at it, and I'll be as honest with you as I can when I come to parts I'm not quite sure on, but um, I, I do want And the Lord to be glorified. We're told to take the whole counsel of God, not just the easy bits and the parts that we like. We're told to read and study and believe the entire counsel, all of Scripture. Revelation is an amazing book. The Greek word for revelation is where you get the word apocalypse. It means an unveiling. And um, that's precisely what we're getting here. God, The Lord Jesus is unveiling for us uh, what is going to come. And we see a lot of that. And I know some people get a little carried away with some of these things. And, and, but I'd rather get carried away about the things of God, wouldn't you? I'd rather somebody get carried away about the things of God than about football or, or about some other nonsense. I'd rather them get carried away about the things of God than about money. So don't be so critical of people who get, in your opinion, who get carried away with the end times. Because we are indeed living in them. And uh, if you won't admit that, then there's something seriously wrong with you and your theology, because even the New Testament writers believed they were living in the end times. So that must mean we are really living in the end times. Revelation chapter 2, Tommy read for us the first 10 verses of chapter 1 and then the first 7 verses of chapter 2, and we'll look together at uh, verses 10 to 20 of chapter 1 here in a moment as well, but... John has been given this revelation to send to seven churches in Asia. uh, But these are timeless letters. They weren't just for those seven churches, or else we would have never received them. They're for us. Now, there are three ways to look at these seven letters. Some look at them as just seven historical letters to seven historical churches, and that's it. They take no personal application for them today, and it just remains as a historical letter. Can I just say that's a very foolish way of looking at any of Scripture. We believe that all of Scripture is inspired, or it's inspired, God breathed for us. And it may not be all written directly to us, but it is written directly for us. All of it, and there's something to be learned. That's one way to look at it. Some look at the seven letters as seven different kinds of churches that can be found throughout the ages, and and uh, meaning you can find seven of these churches in the world today. You can find these kinds of churches in the world today, and I think that's true as well. As you look at these, as we begin to look at them, you can see these different kinds of churches. For instance, there are some churches that will read of in this in this passage in revelations who are under heavy persecution. And you can look in certain parts of the world and see that even today. You can see some churches that are very prosperous financially and they think that they're rich. And Jesus says, actually, you're poor. We see that in the Western world today, don't we? But you can look at them also. Some think these are seven different stages of the church. And uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And that's why some people, you may hear people say, we're in the Laodicean church age. Have you heard that before? And the idea is that we've come now to that last stage of, the, of an era of the church. And, and uh, that's really a very despicable kind of a description. But in some ways, that's true as well. Uh, But nonetheless, there's something in this for all of us. And it's interesting. Go to chapter 1 of Revelation, verse number 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. And look what it says. Send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So these are being written very specifically and intentionally to be sent to the churches. It's interesting you read in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now John saw seven, pardon me, three things when he turned around. Three things he describes for us. He first, he saw seven golden candlesticks. And then in verse number 13, and in the midst of those seven candlesticks, I saw one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. It's interesting. I was preaching in Zimbabwe a few weeks ago and I was talking about the Lord Jesus having hair like white as snow and I can see they were confused because my translator, we were in a village, didn't know the word for snow because they don't have snow in Zimbabwe. And uh, trying to find an adequate word to explain the vivid whiteness of uh, purity of the Lord Jesus' head, we read. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. This is the third thing he saw seven golden candlesticks. He saw the son of man and then seven stars in the hand of the son of man. If you look at verse number 16, we read he had in his right hand, seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, look what it says. What happened? Did he put his arm around him and said, boy, I'm glad to see you, Jesus. That's the way some people talk. I'm sorry. There are some people that say, I had a vision. I met Jesus. Jesus came into my bathroom this morning and put his arm around me whilst I was shaving. People talk like that. And it's blasphemy because if you ever come into the presence of Jesus and if you do see him face to face, you will, like John, fall at his feet as dead. His presence is awesome. And we, we are living in a generation, an age when we've lost all reverence for the things of God. There's a flippancy and a casualness about the things of God. And people want to be relaxed. But John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Even as I read those words, a shiver runs up and down my spine. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, and the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Here we go. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches themselves. Seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Now, most commentators believe this is the minister of the church. The messenger of God sent to speak to the people of God on behalf of God. Meant to stand before God's people and say, thus saith the Lord. Some disagree because every other time the word angelos is mentioned in the book of Revelation is referring to an angel itself. We don't really know for sure, but there's much to... Help us to understand that this messenger could be indeed uh, speaking of the minister. Because after all, a minister does bring word from God. It's his responsibility to bring thus the message, thus saith the Lord. It's his responsibility to see things that aren't what they ought to be and to deal with them. Uh, usually that's the way it works. And the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches to which they're writing. Now think about this for a second. Stars are meant to give light Stars are meant to be a guiding light. In many ways people uh, would use the stars in those days to uh, trek and chart their voyage. The stars would offer light and also guidance. And so in many ways, uh, the, this angel, this messenger of God, perhaps a minister, ought to be one who sheds light on the subject and also brings guidance to the people of God. Interesting fact, they tell me, I don't know, I don't know because I'm not an a a astrologer or whatever the uh, correct terminology is, astronomists, I don't know what it is, people who look at stars. They tell me that a star will burn as long as there is fuel in its core. But a star burns out. You've seen a shooting star or a star that is uh, burning out when the fuel that is in the core of that star is exhausted. And so you could make an application that a minister of God will burn as bright and as long as his own soul is fueled. As long as in his own inner being he's, he is being fueled by the Spirit of God himself. A star. It's interesting. The stars were in the right hand of Jesus Christ. That signifies a couple of things. Your right hand is a is symbolic of Work. So a star in the right hand of Christ, a messenger in the hand of Christ is a tool that Christ wishes to use. But also it's a symbol of authority or a symbol of accountability. That Christ is holding that messenger in his hand and holding him accountable to make sure he says what he told him to say. Nothing more and nothing less. That's an interesting and awesome responsibility and accountability. Seven golden candlesticks. Seven churches. I love this. Think about this with me for just a moment. The Bible says in verse number 13 of chapter 1, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, there was one like unto the Son of Man. Now look here for a second. You know what this tells me? Jesus Christ is deeply concerned about the church today. Do you catch that? There are many people who say, I don't bother with church anymore. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. I don't... I'm sick of church. I'm going to worship God by myself back in the bush or on a hill somewhere. I'm going to do it my. Hold on a moment because you may not be concerned about the church but Jesus is. He's in the midst of the churches. In fact, if that's not enough, it says in verse chapter two, verse number one, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's not just in the middle of the churches, he's walking around so he can see what's happening in the churches. And in fact, in every letter of the seven churches, he says the same thing, I know your works. I can see what you're doing, I know what you're up to, I I know what you're going through, I know your burdens and your cares and your problems, and I know what you're, where you're succeeding and where you're failing. Jesus Christ is interested in the church today. He's found standing in the midst of the churches, found walking amongst the churches. And in chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that the Son of Man is clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. That's the description of a high priest. So he's appearing amongst the seven churches as our intercessor. He's not just... Look here, he's not just examining the seven churches so he can criticize them and condemn them, although he does set them straight, but he cares deeply for the church. He wants the church to be right. He intercedes for the church. He prays for us. That's what Jesus is doing. I don't know about you, but I'm so sick of of all the constant onslaught of criticism and complaints about the local church, whether it be this one or any other. The Lord Jesus doesn't do that. Yes, he will speak specifically about a problem, but he writes it to the church. He doesn't go home and sit down with his father and the Holy Spirit and the angels of heaven and say, hi, do you see what Ephesus is up to? You hear what's happening down there in Oxford? No, he writes a letter directly to them and says, look, here's the problem. Let's get it right. And here's how to get it right. Because he genuinely cares about the church. What a good Savior we have. He knows. He cares. He's deeply interested in the church. He's deeply interested in this church. Now, what material were the candlesticks made of? Seven golden. You know what that tells me? They're precious. Valuable. The church is precious to Jesus, valuable to Jesus Christ. You may not view it that way. By the way, if you don't view the church as precious and valuable, you've got a wrong view of the church. Yeah, but you don't know I've been hurt. I understand that. But the Lord Jesus views the church as precious. It's his bride. The church is his bride. And I understand the church as a whole and and the church of Christ, the body of Christ isn't what it ought to be. I understand that. But he cares enough to try to make it what it ought to be. So should you. So should we all. Now, you say, well, not this church or not that church. He's finished there. He writes to seven different churches. And they're all different characters. Some of them have really got nothing. He's got nothing good to say. But he still is walking amongst them. He's still there. He still cares. So should you be. So should you. Well, I don't like the way this happens. And I don't like the way the church does that. And I don't like what he said or she. Look, okay. Are you going to throw in the towel just because you don't like something? The Lord Jesus didn't just throw in the towel and walk away from the church. He's still with them. Walking amongst them. Trying to help them. That's the heart of our dear Savior. He's a dear, precious Savior. Now let's look at the letter. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was an amazing city. The word means desirable. The word Ephesus means desirable. And it was one of the most desirable places to live. It's one of the most preserved ancient cities you can still go there today and see some amazing historical ruins and sites it was what had one of the finest harbors of the world at that time it was the main commercial center for the coast of western asia it was the gateway to the province for roman officials Many people called Ephesus the Vanity Fair of Ancient Asia because it was so wealthy, so prosperous, and had everything imaginable to be involved in. And it owned, it possessed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple Diana. You can imagine all the nonsense that took place there. Also in its streets was the third largest library in the entire empire of Rome. And uh, it was there in the city center itself. The Celsus Library containing up to 12,000 scrolls. It was the first church birth in Asia. It was the largest and most influential church of Asia as well. It had a blessed history. Now you think about, let me give you some of the ministers that ministered at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul. Think about that. Apollos. Timothy. John. That's got a rich heritage. That church has, I think, about Melbourne Hall and F.B. Meyer, Mr. Fullerton who was there, and Mr. Paul Bassett, our dear friend, a church with a rich heritage of godly men. And Ephesus was hard to find one that topped that. Very rich heritage. They say that Timothy was martyred in Ephesus the age of 90 for going out into the streets and condemning some of the false worship they were involved in. them. history says they martyred him there has a rich heritage. They say that Mary the mother of Jesus died in Ephesus. She probably lived there because she was entrusted to John's care, if you remember, before Jesus died and because John was ministering there, he most believe that Mary would have lived there till she died. Now, this city had an amazing heritage. This church had an amazing heritage, but let's look at the look at the letter. We already looked at the message from Jesus, uh, at least alluded to it. Jesus says, the one who's writing to you, think about this for a second. He says, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus. By the way, that's the way oftentimes we, we find in God's word, the way that God speaks to his people. Through a messenger. This is the way that God often speaks to his people. He can speak to you directly through his word, praise God. He's preserved his word and we ought to be studying it and reading it. For ourselves and feasting on it daily, day by day. That's why Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Because you can get daily bread from the scriptures themselves. But oftentimes as well, God uses his messengers, his men to speak to our hearts, doesn't he? Have you ever been in a meeting before, when when a preacher has been preaching and and uh, you thought, man, that fellow's been following me around all week long. He knows my past. He knows what I've been up to. Somebody, or maybe you looked at your wife. I can remember when Tommy. You've heard me tell this before. When Tommy first started coming to the church, he'd just been saved, and and I was preaching on something, and in the middle of the meeting, he stormed out in a rage. He'd only been coming for a few weeks. I thought, I've what happened? I've offended. And uh, and I I remember following home, him home after the meeting, So What's wrong, Tommy? And he was still in a ripping temper when I got to his place and he said you were preaching about me today I said I I don't know what you're talking about yeah who told you did Maggie tell you about me and he was preaching he thought for sure that I was on his case because God uses sometimes uses the preacher he tells him something to say and the man obeys what God has told him to give and he preaches thus saith the Lord that's the way God speaks to us and so this is what Jesus is saying. Unto the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith, not the messenger, but these, saith, the, these things saith he that holdeth the messenger. And so really, you, this is how you've got to learn to listen to preaching. You've got to learn to listen to preaching. is Instead of listening to a man, instead of doing that, you ought to think, Okay, God, what do you want to say to me today? And that's why you ought to have your Bible open when someone's preaching so you can follow along. And if, if something that he says isn't consistent with scripture, then you can say, that wasn't from God. But your heart and mind ought to always be open, expecting to hear from God, wanting to hear from God. That's why we gather. We don't gather to be entertained. We don't, by the way, we don't gather to get a lecture. You can do that at Oxford University if you want to. Turn on YouTube. We gather to hear from God. I hope that's why you've come. And so Jesus says, under the angel, Uh, saith the one who holds the messenger, the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, look, the things I'm writing to you, church, I'm writing because I've been walking amongst you. Are you listening? Today, Jesus is going to share something with us through his word because he's been watching us, working amongst us, walking amongst us. Jesus Christ is here today. By the way, that's why there ought to be a measure of reverence in our worship. Can you imagine if if uh, the king of England or the previous queen would have walked into one of our services? Can you imagine people laughing and uh, talking and carrying on and just uh, just giving a thumbs up and just carry on? Some of you may feel that way about our present king, but... At any rate, if you have any sort of respect for the, for the one who rules or governs a nation, if someone walks in of that kind of authority, you, everybody would, a stillness and quietness would go across the congregation. People would want to get as close to them as possible. Maybe getting the phones out to get a selfie as, as the king walks by, because we know that there's someone of importance. Why do we come to a meeting, a church service, and have no reverence and no anticipation of meeting the king of kings and no desire to hear him? We sit and talk with one another rather than listening to catch the word that perhaps the king may speak to us. That's why we do things the way we do. Some people think you're just old-fashioned or stuck in the mud or dinosaurs. No, we want to have a reverence. We want to meet with God. We know what we're trying to do. We know what we want anyways. But we're hoping and anticipating. Jesus says, I have been walking amongst you. And look what he says. I know thy works. Now this is a good commendation. I know your works, Jesus says. This is not a criticism. This is a... A good word, he says, Look, I know your works, I know you've been laboring, I know you've been working. Look what he says, I know your works, I know thy labor, I know thy patience, I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them that say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Thou hast borne and have had patience, and for my name's sake have labored and hast not fainted. That's a good letter. That's a good mark of commendation Jesus gives to the church. Now I want you church to listen for just a moment and let us examine our own hearts. Can Jesus say this about us? Now he can say, Jesus can say, and he does say this morning, I know your works. Jesus does walk up and down these rows of chairs and he says, I know what you've been doing. I know what you've been doing for me. I know where you've been working and how you've been working. I know thy labor and I know that you've had to endure a lot. You've been patiently enduring. Can I say that about you? Now look here for a moment. Can I just ask this question? If we saw Christ Jesus face to face today, if he were to walk into our tent and he were to come up to us or maybe he were to call us to attention and he were to take the platform that would be a good day if he were to call us to attention and he were to deliver unto us a letter what would he say what would he say to you I, I know what you've been doing I know you've been laboring for me you've been enduring you didn't want to but you kept going I know you felt like throwing in the towel but you kept going could he say it I like this. He says, I know that you cannot, thou canst not bear them which are evil. I love this. Jesus says, I, I see that you have a real diligence and fervency for what is true. You hate what is evil and false. You've got a passion for what is right. And you won't stand for that which is wrong. In fact, he says, you've tried them, tested them, that say that there are apostles. By the way, in that day, everybody wanted to be an apostle. In Zimbabwe, everybody wants to be an apostle as well. That's one of the problems we're finding there. Everybody wants to be an apostle, and everybody seems to be a pastor. I met about twelve pastors in the space of thirty minutes. And I said, finally, I said, Hold on a moment. Where do you pastor? Oh no, no, I don't pastor I don't I don't have a flock. Well, how can you be a pastor if you don't have a flock? Everybody wants a title. And in that day it was the same way. Everybody wanted to be an apostle, say a sent one, another messenger. Ooh, what authority, what power. And Jesus said, this church wouldn't buy it. If you come walking into their church saying, Oh, hell, I am the Apostle Derek. I've come with a message from God's word. The church would say, sit down, let's have a chat. That's the kind of church it was. It was a good church. It wasn't just going to believe it because you said it. There's a church that was going to try you and examine you and check your words and check it with the scriptures and check your life to make sure your life matched your words. And he says, you've tried them which say that they are apostles and they are not and have found them liars. They weren't afraid to say it. They weren't afraid to call it out and say, you're wrong. You're out of here. So they had this kind of a spirit, a lot of zeal, a lot of energy, a hard working church. They had born has this idea of, of laboring diligently with endurance and for his namesake have labored. Meaning even their motive was right. And they didn't faint. Well, there are a lot of churches fainting, aren't there? A lot of Christians fainting today. Getting tired. Giving up. Throwing in the towel. A lot fainting. And the Lord Jesus says, you haven't. You haven't quit. You've been laboring and working and enduring and bearing much. And you haven't fainted. All good things. It was an amazing church. An amazing church. But, there's one thing wrong. Nevertheless, verse number four. I have somewhat against thee. I've got something against you. One thing. Yes, you're hardworking and yes, you're doctrinally diligent with all those who come in to preach and teach and say that they are this and that. Yes, you are enduring all difficulties without fainting, but I've got one problem. Now listen carefully. One problem. Now remember, Jesus Christ walks amongst us, he sees it all, he knows it all. So what he's about to share is not a guess. You now, I've been in some meetings before. I don't know about you, if you've ever been in these kind of meetings when somebody stands up and says, it's just been revealed to me. Somebody in here has a pain somewhere down in here. And this wasn't what Jesus was doing. Hold on. Yep. One of you is going through financial difficulty right now. That's about all of us. I'm, but no, no, no. What he's saying is not a guess. What he's saying is what he knows, because he's seen it. He's walked up and down um, and walked in the homes of the family of this church and been present at the worship services and been there when they were laboring and working and been there when they were going through difficult times and saw them almost fainting but continuing. And he says, but I've got one problem. There's one problem. By the way, this one problem, probably there probably were other little things, but this one problem was the root of it all. And this is the way Christ works and the way God's word works is we're not symptom fighters. We want to deal with the root of the problem. And here was the root of the problem of the church of Ephesus. And it might be our problem as well. Jesus said, I have somewhat against thee. Thou, because thou hast left thy first love. You have left Not lost. Some people quote it and they have a wrong quotation. If you lost something, you did it inadvertently. You did it accidentally. My wife loses her keys every other day. So, no, I'm just kidding. You lose something accidentally. They didn't accidentally lose their love. They left it. And the word left has an idea of abandoning. Thou hast left thy first love Now, they maybe didn't intend to leave their first love but they did it nonetheless they've left their first love meaning when you first got saved that joy, that love, that zeal that fervency for Christ and the things of Jesus and the body and all of those initial feelings and thoughts you've left it you've left not maybe just the initial feelings and thoughts, but you've also left your first love as far as your prominence or preeminence. What was your first? um, Peter was called the first of the twelve. The Greek word is protos, meaning the first in prominence. And you've left your first love, your prominent love, which should be Jesus Christ. And love for Christ, Ought to be the most prominent characteristic in your life. So not just the object of your love, but actually the love itself, all of those things, and not just the time first long ago, but the object and as well the affection you've left it. Why don't you look this way for a moment? I wonder if Jesus Christ is speaking to you. Are you listening? Has there ever been a time when you've loved him more than you do right now? Was there ever a time when you were more enthusiastic and zealous for the things of Jesus when nothing mattered but Christ and his word and his work and, and you were so in love with the Savior and it was so important, he was so important to you and the word was so important to you and nothing else mattered? Has, has, have you lost that? I don't know about you. But it's so easy to carry on going through the motions. Are you listening? So easy to go through the motions day after day and week after week without any feeling, without any reality, without any substance, just picking up the Bible to read it because you know you should read it and mumbling a few words in prayer before you go to bed and coming to the meetings because you should come. But, All along, you've left something. No warmth. No love. He said to them, Look, I know your works. I know you're still working. I know you're still zealous, I know you still don't like evil, and I know you're still checking what everybody says, and I know you're still doctrinally on top of things, and and, and I know, I know you, you are patiently enduring, you're going through it, putting one foot in front of another, but it looks like this, instead of being a joyful one foot in front of another, it's a drudge. It's a burden to lift your foot, and a burden to go to the meetings, and it's a burden to pray, and and you don't enjoy it anymore no love it's stale cold facts I wonder how many times we allow ourselves to bring our Christian life and walk into that kind of a condition we would still say today that we believe what we believe when we were first saved and probably even more because we've grown in our knowledge and understanding but Our love, our love is not what it ought to be. And can I just say this? If if you don't love the Lord Jesus the way that you should, then look here, you won't love one another the way you should. We won't love one. If we don't love the Savior the way that we should, we won't be able to love one another the way that we should. Do you know? Nothing is as special as finding a church or a body of believers where there is love present. That's precious. I've been, I've been in some churches that are doctrinally sound. I mean, they're teaching good stuff, a lot of meat in the sermons, and you feel like you're getting fed, but very cold. You know what I mean? I've been in some churches where, where, um, they're very active, busy, 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 and work, 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 and here and there and go, but no love. In fact, they're so busy and so hardworking that they can't take time for somebody who's hurting because the work is more important than the love of people. Have we lost, left our first love? Are we colder now? By the way, when that happens, you can feel it. Have you ever been in a church that you felt was warm? I don't mean because I had the heaters turned up, but I mean because the presence of Christ was there. There was a warmth and not just a warm welcome and a big smile. Anybody can put a big smile on their face, but a genuine depth of warmth and love. And you felt these people really love Christ and they really love you. You ever been in a place like that? That's special. But if you've been in a place like that, that was like that, just the same way if you're sitting in a, in a meeting like this and the heat is turned on and the heat goes off and you can feel the temperature change physically, you can feel the temperature change spiritually. Have we left our first love? What do we do if we have? What is the answer? What's the remedy if we've left our first love? What do we do? Verse number five, praise God, Jesus doesn't just... Here's, by the way, this is one of the biggest problems you know, With those who want to be religious and, and spiritual critics, one of the biggest problems is they're very good at pointing out all the problems and very bad at telling us the solution. Very good at saying, here's a problem, there's a problem. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, here is your one problem. i got one problem against you. And here is your solution. Look at what he says in verse 5. First thing, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. First thing to do, are you listening? First thing to do, if we have left our first love as a church, or left our first love as an individual, or as a family, if your own family at home have left your first love, first thing to do, stop and remember. Call to remembrance the former things. Paul says, I write to stir, stir up your minds by way of remembrance. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art falling. Stop and go back and look and see where you once were and see where you are now. Now, some people think they're fine as long as they're learning more information. Wrong. You aren't climbing because you have more information. You're not progressing because you have a better understanding. Understanding's good. Solomon said, get understanding. Get wisdom, get knowledge. It's good, but that's not the goal. Jesus Christ is the goal. A love for him and a passionate walk with him. That's the goal. Remember where you've fallen. If you once loved him more, stop and think about it. Think about how you lived your life. And Every time I tell stories about when I first got saved, I I was telling some folks recently, of when the Lord first saved me and my zeal when I was first converted. How I'd look for people broke down on the side of the road or hitchhiking. And I'd pick them up. You've heard me tell it before. And uh, I was convicted when studying. I don't do that. In, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time. I don't have time to stop the car and help somebody change their tire. Or else I put the window down. Everything okay. And they give, I wait for the thumbs up and I'm away. I feel better about myself. Remember from whence thou art falling. Can you remember? Can you see it? What you used to be? How you used to love? There's your first step. Then the next one. Remember therefore from whence thou art falling. Fallen and repent. And do the first works. Repent. It's not enough just to see where you fell from. Now you have to repent of your falling. Repent of your leaving your first love. It is a sin. It is a crime of the highest degree to leave Christ and to love him less. The greatest commandment of all is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If that's the greatest command, surely the greatest sin is to not love him. The way we ought to. So don't just say. "Eh, Well I'm not what I used to be. But it's going to be okay. Repent of it. Get on your knees. And weep. Ask for tears. And ask God. To help you turn. Then he says something else. Remember. From whence thou art fallen. Repent. And do the first works. Go back. Don't just think about it. Don't just talk about it, but go back and do it. If you used to be faithful on a Saturday out in the city center, then go back and do it. If you used to be at the prayer meetings, but you don't go anymore, then go back and do it. Go back. Don't just hope that God's going to change something. Don't just sit passively by and hope that He's going to somehow just endue you with power and fix all the problems and all of a sudden you'll be back to what you... No, no, go back to what you used to do and do them. With a renewed love and zeal. He says, or else. If you're a father and mother, you know what those two words mean. Or else. Titus, Do this or else. Hadley, I want you to do this or else. And the Lord Jesus, as the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, as the head of the church, says, I want you to remember from whence thou art fallen, I want you to repent of it, and I want you to return and do those old things again, or else... I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. There were seven golden candlesticks and Christ was walking amongst them in and out of them, watching, looking. And because the candlestick wasn't burning like it ought to burn, he says, deal with the problem us i'm going to remove it out of its place now that, there's a couple of encouraging things there every church every god-ordained church by the way we we were in victoria falls and we found that there we were talking with some people and and i said well if i've noticed there are a lot of churches and I, he corrected me the gentleman said no no there are a lot of gatherings not all gatherings are churches they may call, claim to be, they may call themselves churches, but they're not churches if Jesus isn't the head, and if they haven't been birthed by the Spirit of God, they're not a church, they're just a gathering. So I've corrected my terminology and said there are a lot of gatherings, but if a church is genuine and real and God ordained it and planted and led and guided by the Savior, then, then it has its place amongst the churches, it has its Calling and purpose, but if a candle isn't doing what it's supposed to do, then it's going to be taken away. Jesus says, If a salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If a salt is no longer salty, then what you're going to do with it? It's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. And Jesus says, If the candlestick isn't burning the way it should burn, if you don't repent, if we don't get it right, he'll come quickly. He'll come suddenly. And we'll remove it. Except thou repent. Unless we get it right. Unless we say I am tired of living like this. I will remember from whence I'm fallen. I will repent of my coldness. And I'm going to go back to the way I used to be. And I'm going to get it right. And grow in my love. And determined to never leave my love behind again. But if we don't do that, what's the purpose of having a church if we're not burning brightly? What's the point? This is a pretty, let's be honest, this is a pretty bad social club. If all the church was meant to be was a social club, then surely you could have joined the Alive and Kicking group down in Jericho. They have a whole lot more fun. They do Pilates and all sorts of other things. If you were looking for a social club, then surely there's a better place because you come here and you get beat time and time again by the word of God, and and you feel sometimes convicted, and and uh, hey, yet we get a good lunch together. But come on, they are better. This is not a social club. It's a church, and the purpose of a church is to shine brightly and to represent the Lord Jesus in a dark world. We are not called. Look here, we're not called to be here to entertain each other. We're not called to hold lectures so that our heads swell. That's not a church. It's a lecture hall. We're called to study the scriptures, to sharpen one another, to be a light in a dark world, to be the body of Jesus in the city of Oxford or wherever the church is found. That's our calling. And if we're not doing it, Jesus said, I'm going to come quickly and suddenly and take take you out of your place. I love how sweet our Savior is. Because even after such a harsh warning, he says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Christ is so sweet and kind. After a strong reproof, he says, but I am pleased with you. I'm not pleased with this. And if you don't get it sorted, I will take you out of your place. But I am glad. That you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. There's a religious group. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But a religious group that loved to lord over top of people. They loved to develop they developed councils where they, uh, where, where they would lord over top of the congregation. They thought that they were an elite leadership group. And uh, Jesus hated it. Because it, it separated, separated people from, from God. And these people acted as if they were better than the rest. Christ hated it. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Jesus in verse number 7 all of a sudden takes the church at Ephesus and makes it a church to Oxford. Verse number 7 makes the church of Ephesus a universal letter. A letter to the church of Ephesus. He that, whoever has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now look here for one moment. I'm going to close. You've been patient. Look here. It's possible to overcome this. Tonight you might feel discouraged that you've left your first love and you've grown cold. But you can overcome it. He's given you everything you need to get back to where you used to be and beyond. You can overcome it. So he says to him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We can overcome this problem. This is not our destiny. That we don't have to wait till Jesus comes. And takes our candlestick out of his place. That's the way some people talk isn't it. They say Ichabod. I'm going to write Ichabod over the name of that church. That's a God forsaken. Hold on a moment. Christ is amongst us. He's speaking to us. and warning because he cares and he loves us. And he wants us to overcome. What does the Bible say? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We overcome by faith. Read another place. They overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. We can't overcome. I think all of us, if we would be honest, maybe not. But many of us, if we would be honest, would say that we need to improve our love for Christ. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I wonder if, if the Lord has spoken to you today. You've grown a little bit cold. Have you replaced your love for the Savior with a love for learning? Have you replaced your love for the Savior with a love for doing? All of those are poor substitutes. We sing sometimes that hymn, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. May God give us more grace. We sing another one. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Would you bow your head with me, please? Let's pray and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, my own heart is convicted as I stand before thy people and hold thy book in my hand. And I pray that we might know thy help. We thank thee, Lord, for the words that our Saviour gives to us so plainly, so clearly. And I ask, Lord, that we might remember Remember from whence we have fallen, the things we used to be involved in, the things we used to do, and the way we used to love thee, the acts of love and the acts of service were done out of a love for thee and a love for the brethren and a love for the lost. We ask of the Lord help us to repent, genuinely, truly repent. Relieving our love of Christ, our fervency and zeal for Him. Help us to repent and to return. I pray, Lord, that it would please Thee to spare us from having our candlestick removed. Oh, Lord, help us as a church to bind together, to rekindle that flame of love for Jesus for his work and for his word and to burn brightly in this city wherever it is we're placed to be fervent in charity towards each other. Oh Lord, help us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.